uh, this morning to um, continue with where we've been here um, in Philippians. We're just going to kind of uh, jump right in and, and get going. We're in Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to look at verses 12 and 13 um, here this morning. These two are going to run um, obviously parallel with each other. There's a little bit of um, background that's going to be needed. Um, if you haven't been with us or um, if we have a hard time remembering more than two or three weeks ago, we're going to see um, a link between these two. But let's, uh, let's just read our text here to open up. Uh, so Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Paul is writing to them and he says, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Let's pray. Gracious God, we, we come this morning to, to hear your word, to, to meet you, to praise you for what it is that you've revealed to us in your word. We understand that you were not obligated to reveal yourself to us. You were not obligated to speak to us through your word, but we, we thank you and we praise you for the grace and that you have offered your word, that you have revealed yourself so clearly, not only in creation, but uh, through your word and to many of us uh, personally, that we get to rejoice this morning in our salvation. And as we come to gather together, we get to focus on you and you alone in this time and seeing the glorious work that, that you have done and that you continue to do in the lives of those who, who trust in you. God, I praise you for all that you are and all that you do. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we see here, even in these first two verses that we're going to look at, a couple different key terms. We're going to look um, at some of the, the vocabulary, the different things as we continue on. But it's important whenever we get to one of these words, as we do in verse 12, that we always have to look back. We see the first word is what? It's wherefore. This could also be therefore or a so then, meaning we have to understand what happened previously. You know, the old adage of when you see therefore, you have to ask what is the therefore there for, right? We actually have to go back. So what is it that we just saw in all these preceding verses? Paul has already made his point. He has built the foundational part of his argument, and now he is going to be giving a command. He is going to give a call to action, a thing in which you must do. We understand that to be an imperative. He is going to give these things, but I want to pause for a moment and make it very clear. If we do not understand the foundation or the reason for which this command is coming, then we simply are doing just to do, which is essentially going to be going all the way back to an understanding of law, where you just do these things because the Bible says to do it. Great, but we have to understand who is God, who are we in Christ, why is it that we are doing these things? So as we come to this, it's important, and we're just going to go very, very quickly back through verses 5 through 11. And even though you may not believe me when I say quickly, I do mean it this time. And you guys can hold me to it. Maybe. Uh, but starting back in verse 5, he, he has already built this argument and understanding of how we are to conduct ourselves in verses 2 and 3. Uh, just in verse 3, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. This is how we teach our children, right? Consider others as more important than yourselves. Do not be selfish in everything. Try to help 
other people and try to not esteem yourselves as being so much better. This is a, the root cause here of, of pride. Verses 5 through 11, he does a beautiful thing here. It's an example that every man and woman and child should look to. He gives an example, an actual illustration. And I want you to notice he is not drawing a parallel to himself. He does not say, so be like me, the Apostle Paul. If you're familiar with anything that he has written, he has been very, very clear that he is the, the least among people, that he is the chief sinner among sinners. He does not elevate himself. So he has been a model for verse 3 and 4, but he does not say, continue following after me. He makes it very clear who the example is. Verses 5 through 11, the example of Christ Jesus, who, in verse 6, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of man. And he continues as we see all that is going on here of the incarnation of God being man, of God wrapped in flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God who humbled himself and at the end of verse 8 became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. And in verse 11, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. These verses that we see in 10 and 11, also Christina had just in that song. Every knee bowing, every tongue confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. And if you remember when we went through this two weeks ago, we stopped and made the point that Jesus Christ is Lord whether we realize it or not. He is still the Lord over all, both to the sinner as well as to the person that he has redeemed. The difference is one of us is, is incredibly aware. It is not as if the person who rejects God is not under lordship or under the authority in any kind of way. Of Christ. Christ is still ruling over all things. Whether you believe it or not does not change the fact that he is in heaven. He is seated on the throne. He continues to rule over all things. And we mentioned how um, you can reject the idea that gravity exists, but you and I can both jump off of a bridge or a building. We will both fall. But often what we tend to do as man, as fallen flesh and in our humanity, is we tend to reject the things that we do not like. We do not like the reality, so we tend to reject it. We look at the five stages of grief and tends to usually begin with what? We deny. A, a diagnosis that we do not like comes across our table, whether it's an individual one or it's of a family member, and we immediately want to deny, to reject, and to completely suppress that that is actually the case because we do not know how to deal with and how we can continue in our struggle with these things. We tend to reject those things we do not like. And there's biblical precedent for that. We see that all in Romans 1. All men know that there is a God. Romans 1 is incredibly clear. Often we can get caught saying, well, they just don't know that there is a God. When Paul in Romans 1 says, he has revealed himself to all men, the invisible attributes, the divine nature of God is present and evident in all of creation. No man has an excuse. But they know the truth of God and they suppress it. We can walk around, we can look at all that God has made, and we can tend to look at creation. We look at mountains, we look at rivers, we look at the sun, we look at all that there is, but let's even stop and just look around the room. Each person that is here was actively and intimately created 
by God, knit together in your mother's womb. And not just some passive creation of, hey, just a person, but intimately knit together and woven together as God's creation. He gives this beautiful example of the humility of Christ, of the humbling himself, of almighty king over all things, making himself in the form of a servant, humbling himself, obedient to death on a cross. And so he is using this person, this Christ, this Savior, as the perfect example for what it is that he is now going to argue. So he's built the case that these things are true, and now he enters into verse 12, wherefore, my beloved. He has already stated all these things prior to this point. These things are true, so now he's working it into a call to action, an imperative, and going to be giving a command built upon this foundation. The example that was given is of Christ, because if you say that you abide in Christ, we ought to walk in the way in which he walked. Now, in a time, and and as people under grace, and as we understand salvation by grace through faith, and we understand we constantly emphasize grace, 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 we can often go so far that we then decide, as people and as churches, what can tend to happen is we forget that there is such a thing as pursuing holiness, pursuing righteousness, actively living in obedience, that God has still called us to be people to obey, that we are still called to actually live in obedience to what it is that he has command. So here he's making it very clear, and he's going to lay some of these things out. But notice, what? how does he address them here? He says, wherefore, my what? My beloved. Not many of us may speak like this. Actually, I'm pretty sure some of you probably call your spouse uh, beloved, and I'm sure um, husbands, if you do it, I'm sure your wife will love it by the way. Um, Beautiful language, beautiful understanding of the love that Paul has for this church in Philippi. Again, he is writing all these things hundreds and hundreds of miles away while chained in prison, chained to a Roman. This is what he writes to them. He is calling them beloved. Why? Because he intimately knows each and every person. Does he know the names of every member of the church in Philippi? Has he had um, experience with them? Has he sat and drank coffee with them and seen their children grow up? Absolutely not. But there's a common bond that Paul is sharing with these people, and that is the unity created by the Spirit, which we see in Ephesians chapter 4. These are other Christians, so he loves them the same. The same way that I would say any Any believer that lives here in Glenwood Springs should feel this this love for any other believers in any other part of the world. It is not as if we only love the people within our current building or only those in attendance today or only those in America. The church is far greater than Glenwood Springs or Colorado or United States or even the Western Hemisphere. It is vastly larger. And not only just in this present time, but the church extends far beyond our present lifetime. What a beautiful thing that this is. And as Paul is, writes, Paul is writing to them, he not only reminds them of his love for them, but we also understand that this love is only possible because God first loved them. Wherefore, my beloved. And again, he loves them not because they are perfect. Do you love the person that you love because they are perfect? 
any love that you have for someone or any love that someone has for you, is it because you are so awesome and worthy and perfect, deserving of their love? Um, if that's what you are considering, then I'm going to take a guess and either think you're kidding or you're deceiving yourself, or I'm just going to ask the person that loves you. Um, none of us are loved because we are just so perfect and wonderful. Brittany did not, for some reason, choose to marry me because I was awesome and perfect and just she was never going to be able to do any better. We all know that's not true. I know this may surprise some of you, but I am flawed. That's right, Jamie. That's, that's what I was waiting for was you, you specifically. Which makes the beauty and our adoration and our thankfulness for love so much greater, doesn't it? Because we truly know ourselves, and not only is it that someone else would love us, but the fact that perfect, holy, righteous God loved a sinner such as I. This is the most fascinating, most beautiful part about the gospel, is that he who is perfect still has love for a sinful man. So Paul continues after sharing this affection as he always does, as he did in verse 8 of chapter 1. For God is my record, how greatly I long after you and all the bowels of Jesus Christ. Again, he continues to show his affection for others within the church. But then he says this, As ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Now, this always obeyed. Is he saying that they have had a perfect obedience at their church? Absolutely not. Uh, it's not as if the church in Philippi was perfect and there was no struggles, that there was no issues, that every single individual there was perfect in submission and obedience. But this is, he's writing them with the understanding, as you have always obeyed, this continual faithful submission and obedience. As you have done so, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. Because as he writes this, he's making it clear, you are to continue to faithfully submit to God and to Christ, whether I am presently with you or whether I am gone. And now stop for a moment and think about the way that we live our lives and how we conduct ourselves. We are far different when other people are watching or observing or are with us. Many of the sins that people tend to commit, many of them habitually, are not done at the dinner table. Correct? Doesn't happen. People tend to do these things in secret. You do it when you're alone. You do not always do it in a large congregation of people. Paul is writing to them that your obedience, again, is not as if it is supposed to be linked to the person of Paul, but yet so many get caught with well, I, I obey, or I'm, I'm living a life of obedience or in submission uh, just to um, the pastor when he's there, or to my parents when they're home, or to my spouse when they're home. Um, whenever the situation is, a teacher, a mentor, we live differently based on who it is that's around us. And even here, he's saying, whether I am there or whether I am gone, continue in the way in which you have obeyed. Because we do not obey because a, a pastor is there, because a parent is there, because a teacher, a mentor, someone we look up to is there, why do we obey? Who is it that we are pleasing? Who is it that we are being obedient to in these things? We are being obedient to Christ and to God. Um, and, and preaching the gospel, again, something that we are all commanded to do. We looked at this in the Sunday school, but seeing that preaching the gospel is far more than just sharing doctrine, sound biblical doctrine, and giving an invitation. It's so much more 
than just that. It's calling men and women to obey God and to bring about the obedience of faith for his name's sake. That's Romans 1, verse 5. The obedience of faith for his namesake. As you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Whether he was there or not, they were to continue in their obedience. And then he says something that I think is very important and we'll take a moment to distinguish it. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. I want to make it clear that as we see this work out your own salvation, this is not uh, work to your own salvation or work towards or to work for your own salvation, which is a very important distinction to be made. This working out for yourself, this working out your own salvation is not, hey, you need to do in your best efforts all those things that you're supposed to do so that you may be saved. You grew up in church and you hear you're supposed to do these different things. Well, do all of that so that in the end, hopefully, you will be saved. Keep working, keep striving in all of your efforts so that you will be saved. This working out of your salvation, the assumption, and again, as he's already called to my beloved, as he's already understanding the context, working out your salvation is going to be the outward showing of the internal reality. You have been saved, so now work that out. Live that out. Live a life worthy of the high calling of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've talked over weeks about Christians needing to live a life that is consistent with what they claim to believe. What is the greatest indictment of the church? What's the greatest criticism that people outside of the church continuously give is, hey, it's filled with a bunch of hypocrites. Those people claim that they believe all these things. They say all of these things. It's a great show, um, but they're just doing that on Sunday because I've been with them Monday through Saturday. Nothing they claim to believe is actually what they do. This is the most common, strongest criticism that people have always continued to show forth. And speaking honestly, I don't think that's going to change in the next decade. Living a life that is consistent, that is practically consistent with what it is that you are claiming to believe. If you truly believe that you are destined for heaven, that you are going to be in heaven with the Father forever, then live a life on earth that is actually consistent with that belief. Do you have the heavenly mindset, or do you live as if this is truly your only life? I mean, there's the old joke with Joel Osteen, your best life now, which is only true if you're going to hell, right? And now, while it can be said as a joke, I think there's tons of truth and reality within that statement. If we are striving right now to have a perfect, comfortable, best life in the ways that we want it all right now, we completely lose sight of any sense of eternity. Because you know what? I have nothing to gain in this life from sharing Christ with anybody. It does not profit me anything in this present time to share the gospel with a person. All it is likely to, to meet me with is suffering, rejection, mockery, all these things that not many of us are running towards. But the Christian who claims to believe that they will spend their eternity with the Father, with Christ, because of the Spirit, because of the salvation they have received, they live a life understanding we are simply passing through. This is not our home. So living a life that is consistent with the heavenly reality. So here, Paul is writing to them to work out your salvation. Again, not in order to earn it, because we understand 
All of Scripture tells us you can never earn your salvation. You will never be able to earn it. Look at the law. Reflect it upon yourself. You see our sinful state. And even the word here is a present middle imperative. That's for you, Doug. That's right. (laughs) Only two grammar people, me and Doug. This is a command with a continuing emphasis. Continue working out. And again, this extends all throughout your life. This is not continue until you decide it is good enough for you to rest and you have worked out your salvation long enough and now you're good to sit on your hands. The Thessalonian church was heavily rebuked for this idea. Hey, the Lord is coming quickly. He's going to return, so let's just sit back and wait for him. That is not okay. There is no biblical standing for, I've done enough, I'm going to sit back. And all of these things Paul writes about his continuous emphasis on working out these things. Look at what he says in Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 16, and notice the language, and if you see anything that talks about um, resting presently or retiring or sitting back and just observing at any point, please let me know because I didn't seem to find any. Verses 12 through 16. Not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Let us, therefore, as many as be perfect, be thus minded, and if in any thing ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. Nevertheless, whereto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us mind the same thing. He is striving. He is moving towards. We see constant language that Paul is saying, striving. And the word agonizo, this is the agonizing. This is a constant pursuit. There is no rest right now. What is the rest that that God has promised the Christian, the believer? Perfect rest in him in heaven. Eternal rest. For his people. It's been promised from times of old. It was not just a new promise in the New Testament. Rest promised in the old for his people. We are to strive. We are to continue in obedience. Which is why even though if you have been a faithful evangelist or minister or faithful Christian for decades and decades, 50, 60, 70, even 80 years, we can't come to a point of I've done enough. I'm, I'm now to sit back. You continue. You press forward. And this is something that I understand that in my position as a pastor and as a teacher, there is not a retiring from preaching and from ministry. It's not as if I'll get to 60, 70 years old, Lord willing, and say, hey, God, I've preached enough sermons for you. I think I'm done. Um, Some of you know R.C. Sproul. He was wheeling up his oxygen and basically almost getting carried to the pulpit, hoping to die while preaching a sermon, basically. It is a life calling to continue to strive and to persevere. There is not this idea of retiring and of saying, Lord, I've done enough. Um, Your your message of the gospel, I think I've said it enough times. I've shared you enough. I've I've faithfully served enough. Now I'm going to wait until you bring me home. There is no understanding of that. 
Notice what he says to Timothy. He exhorts him in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11 through 12. He says, But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. This is not fight the fight until you've, you've done enough. This is not just work hard until you've decided you can just sit down. Fight the good fight because do we understand what it is? It is a fight. We talk all the time about spiritual warfare, and in America we tend to not see it. We tend to blame it on other things, or we're not really that attuned to it. But we can go to other countries. We see they are intimately aware of spiritual warfare. A lot of times I think we see it and we ignore, we suppress it, we reject it, and try to blame it on so many other things. But man, all the scripture is so clear. We are to persevere towards the end. You will continue in these things. So much of the language is continuing, which does not have an end. There's not an end point. You will continue. Persevere. Jesus himself in Matthew 24, verse 13, said the one who endures to the end will be saved. This is a promise. You endure to the end. And why is it that you were able to endure to the end? Because you have been saved, because you have been given the Spirit. It is not because you are so disciplined You are so capable, you are so strong-willed, and you're just so really good at this perfect obedience to a holy standard. It's because God is the one who is working in these things. He is bringing about the perseverance till the end for his people. We see there's a threefold part of this in the past. We've been justified. Presently, God continues to sanctify the believer. And in the future, glorification. The future glory that the believer has the hope and the promise, and the certainty of. Believers will persevere because it is God's power keeping them secure. That's in John 6, John 10, John 17, John 18, and tons of other places. We're not going to flip to them all right now. So if you thought that, don't worry. But how beautiful and how encouraging is it to know that you will persevere because it is God's power that is doing that in you. It is not because you are just given an attaboy. That is such an encouraging part. And then he also says to do so, working out your salvation. So work these things out. How so? With fear and trembling. Often uh, in churches we can say, when we look at fear, it's really just understanding that there's awe. There is no reason to actually fear God. Um, I would submit to you that there's a great reason to fear an almighty, holy, just, righteous God. But what do we see in Romans 8? That there is no condemnation for those in Christ. What a glorious and joyful truth that that is. In the Sunday school, I asked one of the questions was we were talking about foreknowledge, and the question was, uh, what motivation then does the Christian have to evangelize? But when we we talk about the fear of God, we talk about the reality that God is going to punish the wicked. He is going to punish all unrighteousness. That is something that does and should bring about a great amount of fear and reverence and awe, absolutely, but fear and trembling for the unrighteous person, for the person apart from God. And for the Christian, there is a sense of fear in which there's a fear of falling into sin because we know our own weakness as well as the effects of sin. I said it over and over, 
The Christian is so much more sensitive to sin than the person who does not know God. Why? Because we know it. We are aware of it. We see it. We know what our sin does. We know who we are sinning against. Consider yourself prior to Christ. If you were saved as a child, this may not exactly be the same, but some of you came to salvation later on in your life. Consider the way in which what you now know to be sin, you continued in having no regard for it at all. No guilt, no shame, no even awareness of it. Right? You loved it because you were a servant, a slave to sin. That is what you wanted to do. But now when those things come across, are you grieved by it? Do you understand every sin is an offense against the perfect and holy God? The Christian is intimately aware of the effects of sin, which is why receiving the gospel is so important in understanding Christ died for me in my sin. No longer to only be viewed as sinful man, but to be seen as he is seen by the Father, as he imputes his righteousness in exchange for our sin. And in closing, we're just going to touch on verse 13. I'll, I'll hit some of it next week. So many of these things we are seeing as part of man's role in sanctification. We see it is to obey, to work these things out, to live a life that is spiritually consistent with what we claim to be true. Verse 13 tells us the only way that any of this is possible. Because again, it is not your best efforts. It's not because you worked harder than other people. Verse 13, For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Who is the one that is doing the work? It is God. Our works, our efforts, the things that we've done in the flesh can never please God. The best things that we do the atheist who hates God, openly rejects him, who builds hospitals, and I've mentioned that before, that does not matter. It is not as if that is pleasing to God because you have done a good thing. God does not need help from man in healing. God does not need our help, but he chooses to use man through ordinary means to bring about his purpose. And if that doesn't humble you, maybe take another minute to consider that. It is God who is working in you. It is God who works in the lives of his people, and he is at work continuously with his children. And he causes people to obey, but not only just says, hey, obey my perfect and holy standard, and then says, see, you can't do it, and points and laughs, but says, see how you cannot do it, but I can do it, and I will empower you to be able to do so through the work of Christ through the Spirit. It is not as if he has given a standard that no man can match and just mocks his creation. But what do we see in verses 5 through 11? The humiliation of Christ in coming as the form of a man, obedient to death, even to the death of the cross, enabling obedience for his people. And as Romans 3 says, none are justified by work of the flesh. It is only a work of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says something I think many of us can uh, testify to as well. He says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Are you what you are just because you're smarter than people, because you're more sensitive, because of whatever the case may be? You are what you are in Christ because of the grace of God. And in closing, I just want to take us to Romans chapter 8.
reading verses 28 through 39, and I'm not going to talk about it all. If you haven't noticed, Romans 8 is one of my favorite chapters, because I try to read it every week or every other week, it seems like. But he writes in verse 28, And we know all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. It's beautiful, this understanding that he is constantly conforming us to the image of his Son. And praise God, he is not conforming us to the image of any pastor, of any teacher, or of anyone in this room. It is a promise, it has been set apart, that those in Christ are going to be conformed to the image of his Son. He continues in verse 30, Moreover, whom he did predestinate them, he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. Again, we see God continuing to be the actor in these things. It is God who calls. It is God who justifies. It is God who glorifies. What shall we say then to these things? Verse 31. If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall any anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Christ continuously makes intercession for us with the Father. Continuously. Verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword, as it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long, we are counted as sheep for slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded, and this is a firm conviction, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. No separation will come. Why? Because we did not place ourselves in that relationship. God is the one continuously doing the working. Why is it the Christian can persevere? Because God is the one, through the Spirit, bringing that perseverance, bringing the sanctification. Again, as we mentioned, are you not thankful that God continues to be with his people, that he did not say, hey, you've been justified and saved, so have at it, do what you want to do, you're on your own. But as salvation, the Spirit comes to the believer, the indwelling of the Spirit, enabling us to live a life of service and of obedience, to be able to be used by God. What an incredible privilege that that is, and all of it based upon the foundation of the humility of Christ, because there is nothing the Christian can boast in. We have no reason to boast in anything that we do, because even those things that we do, it is the work of God, the work of Christ, the work of His Spirit, and us doing those things. It is God that works these things. So again, we, we look at theology. Do you have a, a theology centered upon 
who God is and work your way down, or do you believe that we are autonomous, that we are the authority, that we understand who we are, and now our picture of God conforms to that image? Every other false doctrine, every other false religion says, man is basically the center, let's make a God in our own image. Again, that's what we see all throughout Romans 1. There are many who claim that man is autonomous in all things, that that God just has to wait until we decide to do what we're going to do, and he is learning things. This, this concept that God is watching things play out, and he is learning as, as we do. Completely heretical idea, very, very low view of God. God has made all things. He does not require our help, but he chooses to use us as instruments for his purpose, and he leads us along the way. When we say, as the Spirit leads, that's not a... Some colloquialism, it's not just some loose metaphor or a concept. That is an ever-present reality for the Christian, that the Spirit remains with his people eternally, securely, and for all time. What a beautiful picture that that is of his love. Let's pray. God, we thank you again just for, just for the truth of your word, the truth that you continue to to grow, to mature, and to work obedience and, and trust, that you continue to build up our faith as we trust in you, as we see all that you have done. We remember that you are a God of, of the covenants, that you are a God who keeps your promises, that it is not as if the time in which we live is so vastly different to where your promises no longer hold true, but we rejoice that you are a everlasting God, that you are timeless, that, that you have known all things from the beginning and that you are actively working in the lives of each and every believer. We, we praise you that, that by your grace you have even allowed anyone to enter into a relationship with you, that you have even allowed us to even see any, any small taste of your glory. We understand that we have rebelled against you that as we, as we are born, we enter into the world fallen, sinful, and, and under your judgment. But we, we thank you that in your foreknowledge that there are those who, who have come to receive you by grace through faith, understanding it is not of any work that we have done, but it is simply a gift of God as you clearly lay out in Ephesians 2. So we can do no boasting. We can simply rejoice with praise, thanks, and adoration for any good thing that comes to pass, for any salvation, any redemption, any grace that we receive. We, we thank you and we praise you for that. God, I pray that, that as your people and as your church, that we would be bold and courageous to go and to share the message of the gospel, that we would be able to go out to talk about who you are with friends, family, and coworkers, and others that we may come across and as we heard in the song this morning, how can we not, how can I not tell about Jesus? You've been so good and so gracious and so merciful in all things. And God, we praise you that even as things come our way, that will be difficult, that will be trying, any suffering and any pain that comes, we look back upon your word, the truth that it is, and seeing that you are working all things, both in the good and in the bad, for our good and for your glory, and we praise you for all those things. 
God, we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.